0: Hello and welcome to the Forward Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusak. And this week, my guest is Rand Jaris. Rand is the USGA Senior Managing Director of Public Services. And in the podcast you're about to hear, Rand and I talk at length about how the USGA has had to adopt to working and overseeing golf in the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. We also talk at length about distance. You you, you see what I did right there? Did you catch that? Rand explains to me how the pandemic has pushed back some of the original USGA and the RNA timelines for distance-related research projects, but he explains that those projects are now well underway and things seem to be going pretty well. He also explains to me how agronomy, things like turf grass and mowing heights and mowing direction and watering use, all of that could be playing a big role in reigning in distance in the future. And we also talk about making golf fun for players at every level and in every part of the US. So, here we go. The Counter
1: an NFL podcast from USA Today Sports. Featuring for the wins, Steven Ruiz and Chris Corman. I
2: know people are like disassuming that this is an upgrade at the quarterback position, but I don't think we could say that for a fact. I'd say it's, it's a downgrade. He's never really had game to game impact just coming off the edge and destroying people that we thought when we saw his athleticism in college and at the combine. And- the
1: counter diving deeper into the NFL with advanced stats, film study and expert guests. This is the counter. Listen and subscribe to The Counter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
0: And so now making his triumphant return to the 4 Press Podcast, I'd like to rep- uh, bring back the USGA's Ran Jarris. Rand, what is your official title? With the USGA, is it is it Grand Poobah, or are you associate Grand Poobah at this point? <laughs>
2: I am the senior managing director of public services. I've had that title for about ten years, and if you can explain it to me, you get a gold star.
0: Public services. Well, I mean, the USGA is all about public service. I mean, I'll let, you know sort of toot your own horns for you guys. What what yep. has been your sort of roles? You know, at, at the USGA, how long have you been with the organization, and where did you sure. sort of start? At this point, yeah.
2: So, thirty-one years um, this summer um, from when I first—I don't know, my math is wrong. Thirty-two years from when I first walked in the front door, uh, as an eighteen-year-old in 1988, um, Mm -hmm. I first interned at the USGA Museum. It was a stubborn job, which I never thought would become a career. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kept coming back in the summers, spring break, holiday break, uh, all through my undergraduate and graduate school years Mm -hmm. because I loved working in the museum. I fell in love with the history of the game. Um, the richness of, of golf course architecture, um, so many wonderful elements about the game. And I uh, wanted to be a college professor, but the USGA kept bringing me back in the summer. I finished up my doctoral work in 1999. I came back to the USGA
0: as its first historian. Uh, Were you a history major in college? Museum. I was an art history major. Art history. So you were not art only history. just like on the on the nerdy side of campus, away from all the job. Like you, you were you went deep into that. What what area of art history, or what would you what did you concentrate on?
2: Yeah. So let me be fully transparent. Yeah. Art history and geology. I was a double major. Oh wow. Um, and I got really fascinated at the intersections between uh, artistic creativity and landscape. How does the geography or land that's around? Uh, you know a city or a town inform its architectural and artistic traditions mm-hmm. I focused on the middle ages the early middle ages yep and I did my doctoral work in Switzerland um, studying the way that the geography of the Alps influenced the development of cultural traditions and art traditions
0: wow that's really cool and I will confess that I my, my concentration uh at St. Lawrence University I was a literature major and medieval literature was sort of my area so if uh We we can once we get off of this thing if anyone is still listening at this point (laughs) um, to this golf podcast that's now discussing the differences you know in different. Canterbury Tales and, and my delving into yep. to Chaucer and his works and stuff like that. That's that's interesting. So yeah. Um, yeah. So bridging back. So yeah. I you know I did, I did I did I ran our museum for ten years. Okay. Um, and
2: in that time acquired a deep knowledge of the organization's its history, all that it does for the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so they tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to run our communications function. So I ran the communications group um, for about five years. And mm-hmm. now in the current role. And I often describe what I do as community and sustainability programs. Okay. So you talked about public services. You know, we conduct championships. That's not me. Right. We write the rules. That's not me. Everything else that we sort of do that serves golfers and mm-hmm. golf courses, those are the areas that I oversee. And it's trying to make the game uh, uh, sustainable, trying to help make the game welcoming, Um uh, all of those things that we do to really serve, you know, tens of millions of golfers in this country and around the world on a
0: daily basis. So I will tell you, folks, that um, it seems like another time and another place. But early in 2020, I had a chance. You and I and some other people met at the USGA headquarters in Fire Hills, New Jersey, and I got to the meeting, which was a little bit of a, a sneak peek at the distance report that was going to be coming out a, about a week ahead of time. Uh, there were select members of the media who were given some information and is part of our job, we oftentimes, and I did in this case, are asked to keep that information under wraps. It's referred to as embargoing it. And it allows us to do a little bit better and fuller job and in some cases ask the questions that go into the articles and the stories and the videos that we put out when major new stuff like the distance study is, is announced. And we agree to that because it gives us information that makes it just for a better stuff. I got to that meeting about 30 minutes early. And I did that very much intentionally uh, for two reasons. Number one, beating the traffic through the tri-state area, going from Connecticut to your offices in New Jersey. um, You are rolling the dice on a good day. And on a bad day, you don't even have two dice. You have a half a die and you're trying to roll an eight. And that's just not going to happen. Number two, and one point is to go to the museum for people who ever have the opportunity. And I presume the museum is not open to the public. Um, at right at this time when we're recording this, if you have an opportunity to go, you have to go. It is one of the better ways to spend a couple hours. If you love the game, um, I was there when the Jack Nicholas room was opened up a couple of years ago, which was great. Um, but to go in the rooms, which, you know, feature the works of Bobby Jones and Arnold Palmer, obviously Nicholas, Ben Hogan, and I'm leaving out lots and lots of stuff, To see the memorabilia, to see the artifacts from the game, Um, you literally go around corners. And I've likened it to going into a really fun neighborhood sports bar, again, when we could sort of safely do those kinds of things. And you see, you know, whatever memorabilia jerseys and helmets and, and, you know, whatever it's going to be, scorecards that are on the walls. And those are all fake. The stuff at the USGA Museum is the real deal. You know, when you look in there and there's a pair of golf shoes with an extra spike right in the middle, that's because that's Ben Hogan's real shoes and he really wanted that there and you learn about that. You see a medal and it is Bobby Jones medal for winning the US amateur. You see the trophies, not, you know, that there are obviously replica trophies that, that get to be presented and kept by USGA champions. The real ones are kept on display and to see, for example, the U.S. Amateur Championship trophy and other ones that are there. It is really, really cool. Um, I was not a big museum kid growing up as a, as a young kid and then as a tween, but like, I've come to appreciate that stuff more and more. To go to the USGA Museum in Far Hills is something that... Um, you will really really enjoy i'm assuming right it's it's not open at this point is it sadly no no we had to
2: close the doors in march we are keep hoping we're going to reopen but at this point maybe some point in the spring and we're just dying to have people come back so dying to have
0: people. being 2020 and such and we've now obviously you know t- talked about the, the effects of this year on on us personally what what was for you the most challenging part of 2020 from a day-to-day standpoint from a workflow standpoint How did the USGA's decision, obviously, to to change the way it does business affect you personally and the the way that you you run and operate your programs?
2: Yeah, you know, I think uh, it's been a remarkable year. Um and obviously the organization's sort of first interest was in making sure that our people stayed safe. Mm-hmm. I mean, every good organization did that, right? Let's keep our people safe. Absolutely. Um, and let's keep our programs sustainable by keeping our people safe. Um, you know, we closed our offices on March 13th. I think the first couple of weeks were a little bit crazy, but then we pretty quickly settled into a new routine. Uh we learned that we can operate really effectively in this sort of virtual environment that we can talk to each other over video mm-hmm. and really get most of the work of the organization done um super effectively um continuing to serve the game through the disruption i mean that was sort of our our motto mm-hmm. uh, obviously the biggest disruption was on our championships yeah uh, 14 championships in a usual year for this year that's disappointing it's disappointing for the players who have you know who have Practice and played for years to qualify yeah. for a championship, and not be able to do that—disappointing um, for the fans that you can't allow on site. You know, at Wingfoot or at Champions or at the amateurs. You know, we get we get spectators and fans at our amateur championships for sure. Um, uh, and, and, tough for those, those sort of disappointments, but we had four great championships. I think we were really proud of the fact we think we conducted the four safest, uh, events in golf, um, this year, uh, extraordinary, uh, efforts and measures were taken and we had some great championships. Um, You know, for the non-championship activities, a lot of the things that I get involved with, um, it's disappointing not to be able to engage face-to-face with golfers or with golf courses. Mm -hmm. But I think we really successfully shifted programs and content to the digital world. Um, And some of our programs saw real large increases in our digital traffic just because we made more of an effort to reach people digitally. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, sort of personally, I probably spend 75% of my time, um, probably not different from any of our staff, um, just on video calls. Yeah. Right. Um, it's tiring, but you can stay pretty connected. Um, Mm -hmm. I was looking at my stats the other day on a typical week, I'm in touch with 120 different people. Wow. Um, so your, your networks that we built, you know, digitally, uh, really served us well. Uh, the biggest regrets are those informal interactions that don't happen. The person you bump into in the kitchen or the hallway stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you, sh- you share an idea and you realize that there's something significant going on that the USJ needs to be aware of or needs to be addressing. So those ideas don't surface as much. Um, and, and then another sort of subtle thing, but I think it's important to note, um, as a leadership team, we became really aware in the second half of the year nobody was taking vacation. And <laughs> same, that's the same actually, thing actually happened a big deal.
0: Our, the same thing it's happened at our big, office, yeah
2: deal. Like we all need that time away. You need the time for your brain to sort of just relax and ideas to regenerate and, Mm -hmm. and be healthy. Um, and we actually, we closed an extra week. We're closed this week and next week, um, two week holiday break because we wanted to force the team to finally take some time off, um, and, and try to approach this in a healthy way as we go into 2021. Yeah.
0: From, from a mental standpoint, you know, it's something probably that's, um, so I was furloughed along with everybody else in the sports division within Gannett, which is basically all of USA Today Sports and all of our other sort of outlets, um, for various weeks throughout the spring and summer. And when you're doing that, obviously you're not getting paid. You're also not in a position where you think like, well, I'm going to take vacation on top of that. It's almost like, okay, I'm going to try and be, um, you know, thrifty about this, but but this is basically time where I am not allowed to work. I am not allowed to answer text messages or emails. There are really serious ramifications to that that my company made very clear to me. Um, And yeah, I have, I'm on vacation this week and next week as well, uh, because I took a look and my boss took a look and he's like, "Uh, you're taking off for a good part of November and December. And, which is great, I would love to do that in like, say, May, June, when I could maybe peg (laughs) it up a little bit more. We just had a snowstorm here, um, which basically means I'm an indoor golf part of my season. But from a mental health standpoint, there probably hasn't been a year that we've been alive when you've needed vacation time more just to try and just turn off and just decompress um, more more than we've we've had so far. Did Zoom fatigue sort of fit in or, or sort of start to slide in for you or members of your team? Because as you said, there's a difference between working virtually on projects and different things and working in an office environment or out in the field, quote unquote, where you have those interruptions that are positive where you have those spontaneous conversations that spark ideas and keep things fresh.
2: Yeah. You know, it's, it, for me, the fatigue comes from the back to back. Most days are scheduled from eight in the morning till five, six o'clock, mm-hmm. just continuous. And you just, you don't get the mental breaks that are in there. And I think, uh, I, th- I think, it is, I think fatigue is a good word for it. Um, and, Look, it's particularly important in golf. I mean, I think it's important for the golf community to understand, right? What is it about this game that's so special? One is the relationships. It's the human interactions that happen on the golf course. Yeah. And we're all sort of, you know, that carries into the, like the, those values carry into the workplace and we just miss seeing each other. Um, the other is that golf gives us a break, right? A mental break, an emotional break. You get outside, you get expansive landscapes. You know, I'm spending my days in our basement. <laughs> um, yeah. Eyes focused on a computer screen talking. And you just don't get those, the ways that golf enriches our lives and sort of keeps us healthy and other activities do, right? We're, we're all lacking a piece of that. And uh, and I think it's really important um, as we look into some of this continuing into 2021. Who knows what it mm-hmm. looks like? Um, but for all of us to remember, as so we think about how we manage our personal lives and our and our work lives, um, what it is about golf that's so special to us and making sure that we protect and preserve those things mm-hmm. so that it's, just, it's healthy for all of us. It's healthy and sustainable for the game.
0: I think that we will come out of this a couple of things that my wife and I have discussed on on several occasions number one more appreciative of the opportunities that we have to to us you know from a golf perspective um i had my 50th birthday in october and long about february march before everything got turned upside down i had a real first world problem and i was trying to figure out well where do i want to go i know i want to go on a golf trip i know sort of the people that i want to be involved and they i i know they'll be in and um I was thinking about going back to Pinehurst, where I haven't been since the U.S. Open, um, or going off to Sand Valley, a new you know place that I have not hit. I've got family that's in the Chicago area; could play a little there. It's not such a long drive; it'll be fun. Play over there, and and these are real first world issues that all of a sudden I just didn't feel safe to to jump on planes and to do extra travel beyond what I sort of needed to do for Golf Week. Um, I will never sort of feel. Anything other than appreciative and happy at the opportunities to do things like that, and I'm more optimistic now than I was two or three months ago. The fact that we have vaccines coming out, Um, there are still far too many people getting sick at this point. Obviously, you know anything more than you know zero is an unacceptable number of people who are dying from COVID. I feel like there is light at the end of the tunnel. I feel like the winter is going to feel long, but spring will be better. The summer of 21. Hopefully, it will be a lot better than the summer of 20. But I think in some crazy ways, and I've written this a little bit for Golf Week, that I never would have wished this on any of us. But it has made me appreciate, and I think a lot of people appreciate golf and everything that it has to offer, so much more than we ever would have before. I also think that we will be much more resilient as people because we have had to change and adjust so much of what we do without ever having appreciated or thought about it before. You would go to your office. We would... Go on planes and and go to championships and go to work events. And we have not been able to do that. Yet we have been able to work successfully um, under those circumstances. And that's something to be remembered as well that we can still thrive and still achieve our goals, even when nature, the world, throws big monkey wrenches into the works. So, Um, I will now step off of my soapbox here upon Mount Pius and um, get into some of the things that hopefully the the people will be a little bit more interested in, which is whenever I talk with you, the word distance comes right into it. You know, and this is one of the things that as the person who covers equipment and technology for Golf Week, I get asked by my colleagues as well as people on social media the most about. Um, This was supposed to be a year when a lot of different research and a lot of different projects were going to be going on jointly by the USGA and the RNA to look into distance as a problem. The USGA and the RNA having come out and said that we feel for a number of reasons, distance has become a problem with the sport of golf. Where are we with what you had aspired to do in 2020? I'm assuming we're behind schedule. Um, But where are we sort of, in the studies and in the investigations that, that you would hope to go in through and in 2020.
2: Yeah, Dave, thanks. Um, I think, you know, it, it's helpful to go back to February 4th. Um, if you'll allow me to do that Please do, and, and just sort of kind of revisit what, what happened in and around there, because there was a lot of, uh, I would say momentum, um, dare I say enthusiasm, um, in the wake of the release of the distance and such report and the statement of conclusions, um, people reacted, the community, our golf community reacted, I think, really positively to the ways that we were able to sort of refrain, uh, refine and reframe um, the issue of distance um, in ways that was more understandable to people. Uh, people accepted very, you know, at the, at the highest level, people accepted that there were two major issues that we identified in outline. Number one, that you had this cycle of increased hitting distances and course lengthening. And that that course lengthening has created problems for the game and the long term sustainability of the game, you know, and second, and I think it was surprising for a lot of people. We highlighted this issue at the sh- call it the short end of distance, that there's a lack of appropriate tees for many golfers to be able to enjoy the game properly. I think people went into as we started the distance insights project a couple years ago, um, For most people, it was a singular focus on the professional game, Mm -hmm. um, the elite male game uh, and what was happening there. And we pledged to look holistically at the issue, um, to look at golfers in every step of their journey from beginning golfers, you know, all the way up to the elite professional golfers um, to understand what pressures the distance was placing on the game. Uh, I think we were very authentic um, to that mindset um, and really came forth with – uh, you know, more than 120-page um, distance uh, insights report, um, and the statement of conclusions that helped them sort of reset um, and and redefine the issues. And the, mm-hmm. the stakeholders across the game reacted um, very positively um, to that. I think, in particular, um, the notion of the cycle mm-hmm. of increased hitting distances and course length things, the pressure set was playing. I mean, there was no pushback. Um, everybody immediately said, "Get it, got it." What's the solution?
0: Were, were you surprised by that? Because there, regardless of it seems what the USGA and the RNA present, there always seems to be, regardless of which way you swing on different issues, there's always one side that feels there's not a problem or you're not addressing it because the problem is obvious. It, it, in some ways, I have felt you, there have been arguments and positions that the USG and the RNA have where you can't win, where things are relatively evenly divided or divided enough where, wh- were you surprised that this was pretty much universally accepted? Yeah. If there was a criticism, it maybe the only criticism was what took you guys so long. Which, setting that aside, everything else seemed to go really well. Yeah, if you could, I mean, if
2: you like, if you could get in your time machine and go back sort of three years to when we started it, Mm -hmm. I think there was definitely sort of anxiety and concerns about, you know, by the time we get to the end of this, are we going to have a compelling set of data and a compelling story to tell the community that it's going to embrace fully. we weren't sure because the issue has been so divisive, you know, for a hundred years. I mean, that's what's, I mean, you knew it's there, you know, it's there in the, in the, in the newspaper stories and the magazine articles. If you go back 120 years and the, the gut approach of all the Haskell ball, you know, that distance has been debated, discussed. It's been a source of contention for 120 years. All the research sort of reconfirmed all of those things we thought about how challenging it's been for the game. Um, yeah. But what the data really brought forward is just how some of the pressures from a sustainability perspective have really accelerated in the last 20 years. Pressures mm-hmm. on the time it takes to play, pressures on resource consumption, on water, um, on costs that are passed along to the golfer. Right? All of that information told an even more compelling story than we might have thought three years mm-hmm. before. I think there were certainly people close to the game who thought, "Oh, mm-hmm. there's a really serious issue here. Um, it's not to sort of." Uh, negate or diminish those, those perspectives from a couple years ago. Uh, but boy, the, the compelling nature of the story um, and the data really became clear. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's a little bit of surprise at at how well uh, people and the community responded to it. Um, As we saw it all come together, we understood, I think, the strength of what was there in the days and weeks leading up to February 4th. As we talked to each other, as we pressure tested and double checked our assumptions (laughs) and our research and our conclusions, this is an exhaustive sort of process. But as we went through all of that, I think we felt that we felt confident going into February 4th, that we were going to be able to make people ask different questions about distance to think about the issue differently. Um, and, and have a different conversation moving forward. By the way, that conversation still needs to happen, right? We all need to be continuing to discuss these really important issues. That's what No, to dial back a couple minutes to your question. I mean, that's where we, that's where we thought we were on February 4th on the brink of being able to start collaborative discussions about, distance issues and solutions with the golf industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, then March happened. It's all been put on hold. Yep. Um, it was the right thing to do for the game. And I don't just, you know, yes, the equipment manufacturers, but the golf course owners and the allied associations we work with, we all had to make sure we were taking care of ourselves and our businesses and, and doing what's right for the game at a time when, when, when energies and attention should be focused on, uh, really critical and important issues. So we hit the pause button,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, in the last, you know, month or two, we're coming off pause. Um, we're starting to work more actively. We are able to work collaboratively, um, with our partners across the issues in ways we weren't able to do in April, May, June. Um, mm-hmm. There's a little bit of sense of stability. Um, that's there. I think there's um uh, a feeling of positivity uh, across the industry, given how many people and how many rounds were played this year. Well, I think
0: that right. we, so, it's 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 easy to forget that there was a real sense of panic about the industry, about golf equipment companies. If you go back to certainly March and early April, you know, the masters gets postponed. There were states and different localities where you couldn't go out and play because it was a hard lockdown. Um, It wasn't until end of April, then beginning of May, Massachusetts becomes the final state to allow people to go back onto the golf course. And lo and behold, golf proves itself to be one of the few activities that you could socially distance and safely participate in during a pandemic. And then boy, did that just open up the floodgates. And it's been a wonderful, as we sort of talked about before. Um, A renaissance, if you will, in terms of participation, which you know you don't, as you said before, the championships doesn't fall under your purview. Some other things, but but this sort of does. um, From what you've heard, is do do you anticipate that to continue? I mean, obviously in the Sun Belt, um, in the Southwest, those things can still be done. And this is a little bit of a tangent off what you were talking about, which I'm not going to let you off the hook on, but. Do you anticipate from what you're hearing at the ground level that golf is going to continue on at least an upward climb? I don't know if it's realistic to think that we're going to have the levels of growth year over year that we had in 2020. But how are people feeling about the future of golf from what you hear? Uh, Optimistic.
2: Um, now, uh, at, at the levels we've seen this summer, I think there are questions being asked, and I think they're legitimate. Mm-hmm. And and golf course operators in the industry, they're asking the right questions, which are how do we keep these people? Yeah, like what was it about, what was it about the experience that attracted people? What. Allowed them to have positive experiences and, and how do we continue that in the future it's very parallel and relevant to this is relevant to this distance.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, conversation is the work we've been doing for a couple of years now on golfer experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the USGA working with the University of Wisconsin and some other researchers is taking the deepest dive ever into looking at the factors that influence the quality of the golf experience. Um, pace of play is really high. Uh, the cost to play the game um, is actually really high. The quality of the golf course, the experience, we're learning more detail about it than we ever have. But I bring this up because it's important. Um, Pace of play is one of the biggest sources of satisfaction or importantly, dissatisfaction, right? If you have a long round, man, you are out. Mm -hmm. A really interesting thing that happened because of the new um, uh, recommendations that were put in place, golf courses spaced out their tee times, and we've been saying for a couple years now, right? One of the biggest sources of pace of play is that we push too many golfers on the golf course mm-hmm. too quickly, right? The starting time intervals need to be longer. And at some of your most extreme golf courses, and I'm talking L.A., public golf, you know, home mm-hmm. of the seven-hour round, <laughs> they were forced by the state of California to expand those tee times. They were cutting like an hour off of their round times. There were some huge success stories in pace of play. Mm-hmm because of social distancing requirements. And I hope the industry, that golf course operators learn something meaningful yeah. there, that if you provide a better experience, people are gonna come back. Let's not lose that. Um, you know, as we move forward, and I think we all need to stop and actually reflect on the last six or seven months to understand what was, what was so successful, uh, there, um, in driving people into the game and keeping them in the game. Cause, cause boy, it's been a success story.
0: I, and obviously the folks, for example, Chip Brewer at Callaway goes ahead and they purchased the remaining portion that they didn't already own of Top Golf, And the reason for that is the the experiential aspect of that, getting people who go to facilities like that across the country, and they're opening up more and more all the time. Um, people just go there instead of, for example, the bowling alley experience. Everybody sort of goes to, to bowling once or twice a year, like, okay, fine, but like, that doesn't mean that they're all of a sudden going to join a once-a-week league, but it's fun. People go to Top Golf who've never been before, and even if they've never held a golf club in their hands, they're in an environment for, as you're pointing out, a set period of time, an hour, hour and a half, they have a few drinks, they're there with friends, they hit some shots, they play some games, and they discover, wow, like this is actually fun. And taking that golf experience, which a person who is a once or twice a week player doesn't necessarily always think of that as a golf experience. That's a top golf experience. That's something else. There's balls and clubs, but that's not our game. Transitioning those people from what their first experience at something like that Um, or Five Iron Golf or other places like that and turning them into people who are like, yeah, I'm actually going to go to what we would traditionally think of as a golf facility, a club, or a course, whether it's municipal or whatever. And yeah, I want to take a lesson. Yeah, I want to actually go out and play nine holes. Like, I want to see what this is like. That clearly is, is a huge part of what the growth of the game now is going to be because as more and more people have experienced our sport through that, it just is a total natural, and obviously, Chip's bought in. He he's into the point where they're they're going ahead and they're doing this. Um, I want to transition a little bit into equipment and other things in your toolkit that you have as they relate to distance. I get asked by people all the time, even on the Golf Week staff, drivers, driver length, drive you know, golf balls, all these different things. If you're going to try and roll back things, and I've talked to some pretty Astute people in the golf equipment industry who tell me, you know, if you want to make clubs shorter, yeah, we can get around that part of the mousetrap. If you want to make them smaller, we can get around that part of the mousetrap. Rory McIlroy, Tony Finau, they're going to still be able to bash the ball around, unless there is something that the USGA and the RNA are willing to to go for a meaningful reduction in distance at the club level. It's difficult to sort of split those things around. Aside from equipment, what type of tools? Does the USGA and the RNA have in your disposal to potentially look at distance and reduction of distance?
2: It's the distance insights report um, in particular brought forward uh, identified a number of opportunities and what I'll generally sort of characterize as golf course setup and golf course design mm-hmm. um, that we know are factors that influence distance. So the data is very clear on this point. Um, that you can sort of solve for a single variable and understand um, that course setup decisions um, and course design decisions actually do have an impact uh, on distance. What's um, it's a really interesting topic here is, is figuring out uh, how changes in those different factors influence, did it, influence distance mm-hmm. and then collaboratively how we as an industry decide uh, we want to take on the issue. Um, really important for us to, you know, talk about at some point is just this notion of giving the game options.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, There may be facilities where, you know, based on the day and the event that's happening, based on their segment of golfers that they're serving, right, these distance pressures are less significant than they might be um, for other competitions or other segments of golfers. Mm -hmm. And a golf course needs to be able to sort of flex and accommodate. It's not that there's, you know, a new set of uh, regulations that you're somehow going to try to impose on the game to to pull distance across back across the board at every facility on every day.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it's understanding that operators, tournament committees, right? They need to be able to offer. They ha- need to have a toolkit that they can offer a different type of challenger experience depending mm-hmm. depending on the day and what they want to do. Um, and that's where these types of decisions can fit in. So, um, in the distance insights report, we talked about things like fairway firmness. Okay. Uh, bounce, bounce and roll. Um, uh, how far does the ball travel once it hits the ground? Look, Bob Jones used to hit the ball 300 yards. Now, he would hit it yeah. 200 yards in the air and 100 on the ground. Mm-hmm. Right? Today, these guys hit it 300 in the air and, and 10 on the ground. Right? So, the game the game has changed. But we know that fairway firmness, just intuitively, you understand, it can make a difference. Mowing heights um, can make a difference. Mowing direction can make a difference. Yeah. Um, the USGA, you know, we're, we're, we're not uh, – it would be unfair to say that we don't experiment, <laughs> you know, with things like that. The U.S. opened at Marion in 2013. The world asked, like, how are you going to conduct uh, a true test for the game's uh, best players on a course that's under 7,000 yards? One of the things we tried at Marion, we increased the mowing height of uh, the fairways. It reduces bounce and roll. Uh, you cut the fairways uh, back towards the tee, so the grass actually leans back towards the tee. It reduces bounce and roll. We know meaningfully that those things can have impact. Um, Fairway widths can have impact on Mm -hmm. distance, right? How confident do I feel that I can (laughs) come out of my shoes as I swing because my fairway is super wide um, versus a tight fairway and maybe I have to throttle things back. Mm -hmm. Um, We have data now that helps us quantify um, the impacts on each of these factors on the game. Um, And we can start to look at course management practices that if I need to, if I as an operator on a certain day want to change some of the playing characteristics of the golf course, I may be able to change my uh, irrigation um, schedule
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and irrigation quantities. I may be able to change the height of my, of my uh, fairway mowing heights. Um, we're looking at even things like different grass types. Different grass types actually impact you know bounce and roll. Some grasses produce more organic matter. Um, and so that surface is just softer. So nothing about you know, varying the amount of water I'm putting down, although that's one variable. But we yep. can actually change grass types um, and have a firmer surface or a less firm surface. Um, so and, so yep. it's
0: not unreasonable to think, for example, that a club at a local facility, if they want to make a long par 5 play longer, you could grow the grass higher in the fairway um, and cut it back towards the tee box, thereby making the hole effectively even when you're in the fairway play longer. Is that is that correct? Yeah,
2: yeah that's great. Or, or you could even vary it across the length of that fairway, ah, right? So yeah. for your shortest hitters, maybe it's cut a little lower and it's and it's a little firmer. But as you get further out from the tee, where those longer distances are, and you mm-hmm. want to sort of curb, you know, maybe there's variable mowing heights. Again, it, it's sort of uh, you know it's yeah. it's options. What's really great about the mowing height. Sort of issue, connect this over to sustainability in in two different important ways. Number one, you put turf grass under extreme stress when you cut it low. Mm -hmm. It needs more water, it needs more fertilizer, it needs, you know, it's more prone to um, diseases, so you put down more herbicides and pesticides. Mm -hmm. Um, That process of cutting that turf grass low or putting it under stress. Increases the impacts, uh, the, the resource impacts of that golf facility so we can create a more sustainable landscape by potentially mowing that higher second sustainability factor, which is, uh, it's the human side of it, um, uh, it's easier to get the ball up in the air. <laughs> it's, it's when when that, that cut a eighth little of higher, an inch or whatever it is ha- it a little bit a higher. difference. Yeah. You know, uh, you know mm-hmm. how hard it is to hit a, a three iron off the turf when it's cut really short versus if that ball's sitting up a little. And that is a, that is a golfer's key golfer experience or golfer satisfaction issue. At Marion, where we, where we increased those mowing heights, the, the club kept the mowing heights high for the rest of 2013, and the members loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, people were getting... You know, we talk about the yips on the green. People were getting yips, you know, on pitch shots and chip <laughs> shots because the ball was sitting too tight. So tight now yeah. the ball's sitting up a little bit easier. And we talk about wanting, you know, to make sure that the game is fair and enjoyable. Well, you know, mowing heights is one way you can control distance, but also improve the quality of the experience for many of your golfers, um, and it can be a more fun game. Nobody likes to just keep hitting the ball, <laughs> hitting it, you know scuttling it along the ground you like to get to see that by
0: like the beauty of the sure. ball right up in the air is part of the joy of the game that's the satisfaction that that once around a couple times around even beginners hit one just right it may be out of pure luck yeah. but it's that magical yeah. sort of satisfaction that all of us have felt that brings you back it's 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 enough of a cliche how much do you bring into or count or have to take into account the regionality um the fact that different parts of the united states from an agronomy standpoint are so varied i mean i'm up here in New England, under a foot of snow. Water, by and large, uh, we had a a very dry summer here in the Northeast, unusually dry, which may end up becoming, we'll see what happens, a little bit closer to the norm. But historically, the Great Lakes region, the Northeast, the Pacific Northwest, you're wet. Um, the Southwest, you're dry. The Southeast, you've got all different kinds of things. Different. So how much do you have to study and look at the regionalities when you consider that the rules of golf the recommendations you make are potentially going to be much larger in scale and a little bit more sweeping.
2: So I, you know, I think at the end of your comments there, you kind of hit on the, on the, on the key point, And I'm going to go back to my options thought, mm-hmm. right? Recommendations. So we don't own golf courses. We're not going to be able to regulate and say, you must mow your fairways at this height. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's improper to think of, but you're absolutely right on the sort of geographic diversity. You've got different grass types. You got your warm season grasses, your cool season grasses. Those have differences in terms of that. I talked about bounce and roll, mm-hmm. the amount of organic matter they produce. You have differences in soil types, differences and water resources, both the availability and the cost of water, you know, the whole nature of the landscape, you also arguably have differences in the golfer populations, mm-hmm. um, in yeah. some of your sort of retirement areas in the South, right? It's a different, maybe a different golfer or golf population. Um, so what we have to be working on developing are, Uh, an integrated sort of series of recommendations that that help you as a golf course operator as you as a golfer make the best decisions for your consumer or for yourself right if you're the golfer Mm -hmm. uh, about you know what is the experience that you want to have especially for our shorter hitters right Uh, The average female driving distance is 150 yards one of the key things that the study revealed 8% really a shocking number. 8% of golf courses have tees forward enough to create a pleasurable, enjoyable, or true yeah. golf experience for those golfers. Right. Um, so do you want your golfers to be able to reach par threes in one par twos, mm-hmm. par fours in two and par fives in three? Um, and if so, you know, how are you going to provide that experience for them? And if you have a, a an older popular, I mean, one of my favorite stories is of a, of a club in Florida, um, Uh, Jupiter Island Club that has a a lot of senior women golfers who literally were they were stopping playing the game They no longer found it enjoyable sure because reaching reaching a par five and seven shots You know isn't all that exciting or
0: sometimes when you've got a a forced carry over water on a par three and the shortest tee is 140 yards which to a lot of guys is like, okay, that's not a big deal. But if your driver distance is 150 that's an intimidating shot. I've I've okay. played with my okay. mom, who is in her seventies, lives in Florida, and there are certain courses that where she doesn't go, um, because mm-hmm. she knows in her area, in and around Sarasota Bradenton, the the water makes it not a fun experience for her. She's going to have to go through a, literally a dozen balls, or knowingly hit it, damn near out of bounds. For example, to the right to get around the lake, which covers, you know, the entire front of the green. So she, you know, it's it's one of those things where. Um, having talked a little bit earlier in this podcast about appreciation, you have to appreciate that not everybody can hit certain shots from a design standpoint. If I am faced with a 145 yard shot over water, I've got probably, I don't know, 12, 11 clubs that I can hit at 145 yards or more. I can't use my putter, can't use a wet, one of their two wedges. After that, fine. Not everybody's like that. And that can make for a really discouraging experience. And the last thing that anybody would want if a game is supposed to be fun is to be discouraged or humiliated to the point where this isn't fun anymore. I don't want to play. So I, I think to, to your point, and I'll, and I'll let you continue it. That's a real thing for a lot of people who may not even realize it. That's a real thing.
2: Yeah, just just really quickly back to Jupiter Island you know they had some of the senior women coming off the golf course and saying you know, so they put in a new set of tees at 3500 yards mm-hmm. they really understood what those hitting distances were what the implications were they dramatically Uh, shortened the forward tees and they had women coming off the golf course saying i had my first birdie putt in 20 years yeah can you imagine i mean can you imagine playing the game for 20 years and not having a birdie i hit my first green in regulation (laughs) in 20 years dave you know i that golf is supposed to be enjoyable one of the golfer experience right some Mm -hmm. of the stats that are coming back the data that's coming back to us says you know how i score impacts i mean no surprise there but it's a meaningful in a golfer's experience and if you can't reasonably go out with a chance of 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 a par putt or the occasional birdie putt you might just lose interest in the game. Yeah, and we need I, to make sure we're taking care of those people.
0: You're only going to be a glutton for punishment for so long. Look, if if the game is really fun and we've all had the opportunity and we again you, you and I are in this have these nice one percenter problems when it comes to golf. Yeah. If if you go out to Pebble Beach and you shoot 100, you're probably going to still leave with a smile on your face because of the experience that you just enjoyed. Um if you go to your local municipal club, um, or local facility, and you expect to shoot 90 and you shoot 102, you're not going to probably leave with a smile on your face when it comes to that experience. If it, if you do shoot 90, but it took you six and a half hours to do it, it's just too long. It's like all these different things sort of feed into the entire experience. So that when you get in your car and you turn on the ignition, are you eager to get back? Are you excited at the opportunity of getting back, of making a tea time, of grabbing your clubs and doing all the little ritual things, which I love. The night before I play, my wife just rolls her eyes. Um, I clean off the clubs, make sure the balls are in there and they've all got my, my little mark on them so I don't have to do that. I charge up my little GPS. It's all these little stupid things that I do that are part of the ritual of me playing that I adore. And so when I get there, I'm, I'm having a great time. And when things like get interrupted... It takes way too long it was you know the courses are something where I'm not enjoying myself I'm not enjoying the company with. then then I don't get excited to go you know I, I don't enjoy the experience and that's not what we're we're looking for how much do you think will the USGA and the RNA and this is there's no way you can answer this but that's not gonna stop me from asking how much of what you aspire to do in terms of handling the distance issue can be handled from an agronomy standpoint and how much is it going to have to be, from an equipment or a rules standpoint, or is it invariably like a blending of both? It's invariably a blending of both. I mean, y- y- you understand that sort okay. of
2: intuitively. Um, how how the golf ball performs when it impacts the turf depends on you know its angle of its angle of descent is it's coming in and striking that turf mm-hmm. right uh all those types of things that influence uh, the, the shape of shots the trajectory of shots that that equipment influences they intersect with these same issues of mowing heights and and irrigation and grass types uh, on bounce and roll and overall distance so there's connectivity between all of them
1: mm-hmm.
2: and and again i want to go back to this notion of options we want to give operators options um, you know, local rules on equipment will give them options as to the type of challenge or test they want to provide on a certain day. Mm-hmm. In the same way that options on course setup and maintenance and design are going to give more options to operators and more options to golfers mm-hmm. to choose the kind of experience that they want to have. Maybe golf courses start to differentiate themselves a little bit more in the future. We hope that they will, um, that it's not just about, you know, what's my slope rating how difficult is the test yes golfers want a challenge that's really clear i mean otherwise every golf course would look like a soccer field right Right. be flat featureless with a 10 foot wide hole right that's not why we play the game we play the game because we like variety we like challenge um but we also we need to find really collaborative and thoughtful ways to intersect those equipment opportunities with the course setup um, and design opportunities to provide the types of tests and variety of challenges that golfers are looking for. And mm-hmm. I think that's to me what the future of the game looks like for 120 years. We've been sort of on this continuous trajectory of that. Somehow golf is better when it's harder. <laughs> somehow golf courses are better when they're longer. It's more authentic We've somehow. hit a point. Yeah. I think we've maxed out that thinking, And now, just in the last couple of years, whether it's the cradle in Pinehurst, right, Um, or other, like, we're seeing these really interesting things happening on golf courses where architects and owners and golfers are asking for and looking for something different out of that golf experience. And I think it's a better future for the game when we're not so singularly focused on length.
0: So I have an idea. And I don't know, since you and I know each other and you're stuck on this podcast with me, I'm going to throw it at you. And I want you to... Pass it along to whomever you think it should go to with the USGA. It might be a whole bunch of people. Let's just keep it away from Hunky Ewan and Greg Midland because we know that those guys you know don't bring much to the table. But they, of course, being very very good friends of mine. Um, I want the USGA. You said it earlier in this podcast the USGA is not in the business of regulating or owning golf courses. That's not what you do. I want the USGA to build a golf course that essentially demonstrates or espouses a lot of the virtues that you are talking about now and i want the usga to build three or four of them in different parts of the country so for example i would love to see one in the northeast i'd like to see one in the southwest Um, one maybe in the great plains and one southeast so that i've got as we discussed these different regionalities. show me show golf course operators um, superintendents, show us what you're talking about. Allow us to play on it and create essentially public access testing facilities where we can go and experience the type of golf that you would hope could influence local clubs and local course operators. I thought we were getting a taste of this when the U.S. Open and the U.S. and Women's Open were played back-to-back at Pinehurst. It was a very different look for a lot of people, um, where you had, instead of rough lining this U S open course, you had native area where you took out the planted stuff and lo and behold, wildflowers and sandy areas and native wire grasses. That's what's supposed to be there geographically. And that's what's there. And it creates its own challenge for players. Um, where there's a little bit more browning, where irrigation in the middle is richer, and as you get farther from the center of the fairway, that irrigation, which should be beneficial, that dries out a little bit more. So it's a little. It, I loved it. I adored it. It there was definitely pushback. Um, so I'm I'm not surprised. We haven't been back to Pinehurst since. I want you guys to get into the golf course building business. Um, how when when can we open up those facilities? When is that going to happen? Love, love the
2: idea and, and and it's certainly something that the number of us on the staff are already talking about I want to see that golf course on 100 acres or 75 acres fine I want to see it have flexibility um, so that it offers a different test on every day I want to see it at I don't make a give a your number 11 holes. 13 holes right golf or or today it's seven holes and tomorrow it's 11 and the next day it's right we build in so much flexibility we give options but to your point about testing like research and testing golfers can come and they can try the game in different ways we can experiment the way we set it up in different ways it's urban it's rural um i think it's a. I, I love the idea um and again, a number of us have been talking about this. I hope it's something we can start working on really soon. Mm-hmm. Um, reasons like this are why we restarted our USGA Foundation a couple years ago um, to bring in funds and resources to help us invest in the game's future. And I think one of those ways is reimagining the future of the golf course.
0: So, how much it's has great idea? How much has COVID nineteen set us back from the timelines that you had originally hoped would be there? Obviously, you you talked about the announcements made in February. You had. A groundwork and I'm sure timetables. COVID screwed all that up. Where, where yeah, are we? On, I, yeah. Where are we on the timeline at this point?
2: It's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a little hard to quantify it. A Six to nine months delay. Okay. Um, we, look, we, and again, I said this earlier, we wanted to be respectful of the impact on our partners. of course. Um, but in the last couple months, we've been able to sort of revisit and restart, um, on the golf course work that we've been talking about the golf for experience work. Um, we have a number of working groups. We now have, we've identified 21 representatives and six partner organizations, PGA, the LPGA, mm-hmm. uh, the golf course architects, the golf course superintendents, the golf course owners, right. PGA tour. We have, a uh, uh, working groups now formed around each of these individual topics. Mm-hmm. Um, we are really going to be able to accelerate that work starting starting in January. Right. Um, now that we have these groups formed. Um, and through the course of 21, we're intending to release drafts uh, of recommendations Um, To some of these partner organizations um, and and we're trying to figure out the best way to get input as we typically do on equipment Mm -hmm. issues. These are non-equipment issues, but how can we put out something like an area of interest notice or a notice and comment, get some reactions from golf course owners and operators Mm -hmm. or golfers to what we're talking about. Um, we plan to work through a couple drafts and really hope to have uh, best practice documents that are targeted at golfers, uh, at golf course owners, and at um, tournament committees um, by the end of 2021. Okay. So you get to that point, you know, we're we're nine months behind where we wanted to be. Uh, I hope we would be on some of this work. But I think it's really important that these solutions are collaborative. To go back, I, mm-hmm. one of the best things we learned in COVID 19, you talked earlier about all the efforts to get golf courses back open. Back to golf, that collaborative industry effort where egos and agendas were pushed to the side, and most golfers don't know it. I mean, what happened between these leading organizations USGA, the PGA Tour, the PGA of America, the LPG, everybody like the architects, yeah. and the supers, digging in. To solve for how to get golf courses reopened, that was collaboration like I've never seen in the golf industry before. That's what needs to happen for this distance, uh, for the golf course work and golf experience work moving forward. This needs to be integrated problem solving. Um, that's our intention. And now that our partners are telling us they're able to to work, that they have bandwidth mm-hmm. um, and attention on these issues, uh, we are moving We started moving more aggressively mid-November, and that momentum is going to carry us really strongly through 2021.
0: So would you anticipate that at some point in 2021 you could have PGA Tour, LPGA Tour, European Tour, etc., Corn Ferry um, events where ideas or concepts from the USGA and RNA, as it relates to distance, some of the agronomy things you're talking about, could they be incorporated into some of those events either quietly or very outwardly to see what would happen or is that something that you're going to need to test at test facilities come up with data that sort of supports or or reveals whatever you're going to find um and then you look to those professional tours which and i keep coming back to this because that is the most visible part of the distance part regrettably people are looking at what they say on television and be like okay I, I, nobody wants to spend more money on fertilizer. Nobody wants to spend more money on water. We understand that our resources are finite, that the prices that are is going up, but what they see is Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, Bubba Watson hitting monster drives and turning long par fours into pitching pots. Um, how much do you think you can get those professional tours to collaborate or test? Is that even necessary? Some of the ideas.
2: Yeah, I, Dave, it's a really good question. I I, I mean, I think to, to try to answer the specific of your question, I think 21 is an aggressive timeline for things like that sort of to be to be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly hope it is our intent that. That having them a key part of these discussions and conversations, to be part of the deliberation, to be looking at and reviewing the information and the data, sets them on a path that at some point um, they understand how that those ideas can be incorporated into their setups um, that allow them to continue to, to create uh, the, the entertainment. Um, yeah experiences that they want to do golfers critical fans go to the tour because i love to see guys hit at 300 yards i mean we all love distance it's yeah. awesome power displays when you see it um it's meaningful they've they've got a balance that they need to watch and i think all of us fully understand and respect that mm-hmm. uh, we'll be respectful of them um i hope that you know, over time, we collectively, as a community, understand the sustainability opportunities, the challenges, and the opportunities there from a sustainability perspective. And now let's let's not think on a timeline of 2021. Let's let's look 25 years in the future or 50 years in the future, mm-hmm. and make sure that those you know professional courses aren't 9,000 yards in length and 300 acres, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 the game's not truly unsustainable. We have the USGA and the RNA have this advantage. Um, we're able and, and we're, we're a responsibility, it's not just an advantage, the responsibility to look 25 and 50 years into the future and to mm-hmm. make sure the game is strong. Um, and we think in terms of broad timelines that way, that what we're putting in place and solving for today is going to have created a stronger game 10 years from now and 25 from years and 50 years from now.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, those are the timelines that I sort of think about when I think about change. Um, uh, of of on, a, on a scale of sort of what we're talking about here, um, let's make sure the game is really healthy in the future. Then we'll
0: know we've done our jobs well. You've done your job well today, Rand. I really appreciate you coming on the floor press. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you.